0: If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to 2 Chronicles. It's going to be a tough one to find. If you're doing the paper Bible, you might need to go to the table of contents. I could tell—you've got the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, which my mom uh, taught me to memorize it that way because that was the very Baptist thing, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So clearly Joshua was a Baptist because he was judging Ruth about something. And then you get First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second. Chronicles. So, if you're looking for it in a paper Bible, go to the middle with Psalms, and then go just back toward uh, your left, and you might get to Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 7 is what we're going to look at this morning, and um, And this week, uh, I think we have a slide up of of Boston. Uh, I I do a thing uh, where I'll take groups on a spiritual history walking tour, particularly when we have a team in town from out of town. This week, we had a team here from Greer, South Carolina, who helped us run a kids camp during the week. It was a smashing success. We had a really, like, a whole lot of fun. And then after we got done with the kids camp, we went into downtown and I tell a few stories about our city and our city's history and how God really has been at work in this city since John Winthrop uh, and the Puritans pulled the boat up in Charlestown in 1628, and God was here before that. But we've seen Him at work in our city for almost 400 years. One place I'd love to go is to what used to be called King Street, now it's State Street and the old State House. Uh, if you were to have looked… At um, the old State House, 300 years ago, it would look something like this. You would pull up at Long Wharf, and you would look up King Street, and you would see the old State House. So it was the seat of the British government in the New England uh, in the New England region, and uh, and so on. But on, on July 18th, 1776, two weeks after the Declaration of Independence was signed, uh, a couple of people. Uh, brought the Declaration to Boston, and they step out onto the balcony at the old state house. And for the first time in Boston, the Declaration of Independence was read here in our city. And and so, momentous event… Every year Uh, on the Fourth of July, people will gather down there on that very spot, and someone will step out in colonial garb, revolutionary garb, and they'll read the Declaration of Independence. How many of you have been down there on the Fourth of July and seen it? I know I haven't. I haven't even seen it, Barb. You literally might be the only one in the room. Has anybody other than Barb ever been down there? None of us. We're all sleeping in on the Fourth of July. Barb is the early riser on the holiday, very disciplined, unlike the rest of us. Uh, And we live in a city. where, you know, tomorrow you can go and celebrate our country to no end. Like, there, I, I would say there's no better city in America than Boston to, to live in on the 4th, just because so much of what the 4th of July is celebrating occurred here, and that's awesome. But the danger, though, a little bit is Um, If we unspiritualize this, we've mythologized a lot of our American history and kind of celebrate the good, ignore the bad. And even more dangerously for us as Christians, I think a lot of times we've almost like canonized our founding fathers and we've made them into saints. And I was talking with someone this week from South Carolina about Ben Franklin. They were like, I read Ben Franklin's book. He was no, he was no Christian. And I was like, no, he definitely was no Christian. He, uh, he had a lot of issues in his life and following Christ was not one of his issues. Like he was not too much worried about that it would seem. But a lot of times we've almost like canonized these people, these founding fathers and these national heroes um, and there were, to be sure, like Christians, Christ followers among the founding fathers, among, the, the, among our presidents, among our leaders. But a lot of our leaders uh, were not followers of Christ and did very unchristian things. Nonetheless, like all across our country today, pastors will preach sermons like that can kind of like make something of America. And America is a great country. I love it. I love living here, I've been to other countries that are remarkably free and not nearly as free as our country. A lot of uh, pastors today, though, will preach about this being a Christian nation and returning to our Christian roots. And they will even quote this one verse that we're going to read today. And so, uh, I've got a book called The Most Mis- Misused Bible Verses in the Bible. And I've got another one by the same guy called The Most Misused Bible Stories in the Bible. And man, this one always makes every top 10 you ever find. It's 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verse 14. Now, let me give you the backstory. Solomon was the, um, was the son of David. And Solomon reigned… Uh, at the height of, the ancient, of ancient Israel. He was their king in the, in the mid-900s BC. Solomon was the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson great of a guy named Abraham. And when Abraham was living in uh, what is today modern Iraq, God called to him and said, follow me, trust me, I'm going to make you a great people and a great nation, I'm going to lead you to a land. And so Abraham believed God, and God credited that to Abraham as righteousness. And so Abraham went on a journey from Iraq to the promised land to was today, modern day, the the nation of Israel. He ended up there. And God began to birth a people. Abraham, there's nothing different. He wasn't a different race. It was that he believed God, and he became a people out of his belief. And these people had a complicated history. They didn't settle right off in the promised land. After just a couple of generations, they end up in slavery in Egypt. And after several hundred years, God frees them, brings them back to the promised land, they kind of settle the land. And God says, I will be your king. And they said, No, but we want a king. We want a human king. And finally, God says, If you want a human king, I'll give you a human king. So they get this guy named Saul. He's not a great king. They get another king named David. A lot of us have heard of David. He wrote a lot of the book of Psalms, probably about a third of them. And, uh, and then David's son Solomon begins to reign and rule. And God put something in David's heart that he would build God a temple. And God says, look, that's a really nice ambition, but I don't need a house. And David just keeps going, keeps going. And finally, God says, okay, uh, you can't build it because you're a man of blood. You're a man of war, but I'll let your son build it. And so Solomon builds himself this huge palace, and then he builds God this huge temple. This is all happening around 950 B.C. And so he builds this thing, and he dedicates it, and there's this beautiful dedication ceremony, and fire comes down from heaven, and it's this amazing story of Solomon setting apart the people of God. But God's covenants always had a caveat to them. God said, I will bless those who—I will bless you if you will follow me and trust me But if you don't, it's not that I'm going to curse you, it's I'm going to remove my hand of blessing. Like, if you don't want me, God is a gentleman. He says, I will let you go your own way. And within a generation, literally, the nation splits in two, and there's sort of passive aggressive civil war, and the northern kingdom, where Jerusalem is not, ends up being carried off and scattered into exile, and the 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel just cease to be. But the two southern tribes have some pretty good kings and a lot of bad kings. And over the next couple of centuries, they wander away from the Lord. And finally, in the 500s BC, 300-something years after Solomon, God carries his people away into exile. So they're exiled, and they're enslaved, and their city is destroyed. They're in exile for 70 years, and after 70 years, they're allowed to come back. And all they see is just rubble as they get back. Rubble and remnants. The temple was destroyed. A new city has been built on top of all the destruction. And finally, somewhere probably in the four hundreds or three hundreds, the book of Chronicles gets written, and it's God's people recounting their history of their kings. But after six hundred years, including years of being enslaved and exiled, and their city being destroyed, and so in first First Chronicles tells the story of First and Second Samuel, which are the stories of Saul and of David. And then 2 Chronicles tells the story of King Solomon and the kings after him. It's all about the people just coming to grips with God made us all these promises and we did not follow him and we did not obey him and look what it cost us. And by the time Chronicles is written, there is a temple there, but it's not as grand and it's not as glorious and the city is never as safe and the power of the nation of Israel is never as great. And now, Uh, When you get to Chronicles chapter 7, they're recounting 600 years later, 500 years later, this Solomon prayer at the the dedication of the temple. So let's read together uh, 2 Chronicles 7 verse 11. And then we're going to go to verse 15, I believe, this morning. So Solomon finished the house of the Lord, the temple, and he finished the king's house, his house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. And the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place, the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. Look, not a place where God's going to live, but a place where he is going to receive sacrifices made in faith. Verse 13 Now when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. So God's going into that covenant and he's saying, if you violate the covenant and you stop believing me and stop trusting me, I'm going to remove my hand of blessing. I'm going to give you your way. But when I give you your way, you're going to have pandemic, you're going to have poor crops, your economy is going to struggle. When that, all of that stuff happens, ancient Israel of 950 BC, he says this in verse 14, if my people, the ancient Israel who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. If you Google search, if you Google image search this verse, by the way, which I would encourage you to do later, go look and see how many American flags and American maps are behind it. The crazy part is that is not, God is not talking to or about America at all. Recalling Solomon and a temple dedication, they write this five, six hundred years later, but they're writing it about a specific moment and a specific people. So, what's actually said in those verses are a couple things. God says, if my people, and when God's talking about this, He is talking about the nation of ancient Israel. It is a nation that does not exist today. You might say, well, isn't there a country of Israel? They, there is. It is not the same thing as ancient Israel. This is a nation that ceased to exist in the 500s B.C., and this nation has never existed the same way, this covenant people the same way. They were a 12-tribe people with one king at this time. And God says something about this place. He is talking about 10th century BC Palestine, the ancient Near East between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. God says, I'm going to bless this place in the 10th century BC. And then he's talking about this land. Scott was just in this land the other day. It's really, really old. Like we go to old places. Like I love going to the old state house. And In America, when something's replaced with something built before 1800, you know you're living in a pretty old place. For America, Boston is really old. Our new state house is 220 something years old. That's old by American standards. But it's not old by most people's standards. Hugh and I were talking about this the other day. Hugh and Alex and, and Sam just moved here from England the other day. England is much older, obviously, than America. And if you go to ancient Israel, it is millennia old. Like we think of America as being old in terms of centuries. There are places in America that think of being old in terms of decades. But when you go to ancient Israel, it's old in terms of millennia. And God's talking to a very specific people about their very specific land 3,000 years ago. These people would hear this, however, around 400 B.C., they would hear this and they would remember their ancestors. As this was being read to them, they weren't thinking he's talking about us. They're thinking he's talking about great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa, the king, King Solomon. They hear that and they remember their ancestors and they know they didn't do what God told them to do here. And this is the saddest part. Because, as amazing as singing, I surrender all and surrendering all, as amazing as the potential that's unlocked when we do that, there's equal sadness when God asks to surrender all and we say, Nope, I'm all set. I don't trust you. I can't do it. I'll do like this much, God, but don't ask me to do this much. And what happened, the Lord asked them to do this much. He asked them to trust and obey and believe. And they said, God, that's too much. And so the way that played out, by the way, in their nation in the 950s and 800s and 700s is they had the temple. It was there. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was unbelievable. The gold and the precious stones and everything that surrounded it. But on every hill in ancient Palestine, they also put idols to other gods and goddesses. And so they were like, God, we love you. We've got the temple a couple days a year. We go, to, we go to temple and we worship and we offer sacrifices. But all the other days of the year, we've got all these little idols up here just in case you're not enough. And God's like, I'm enough. I'm enough. But God, what if you're not enough? And we've got to keep these up here in case you're not enough. If, the dr- if, if we go into drought, God, we've got to keep a rain idol up here on the hill so we can pray. And God's like, but I told you I'll protect you from drought. And if a, a pestilence of locusts comes, God we've got to keep we gotta keep this crop, this fertility God and Goddess up here on the hill so we can pray to them. If it happens and God says, But I'm enough. If you'll just trust me, I'm enough. And then they say, but God, what, what if a pandemic comes? And oh man, God, what if, what if our people are sick and we're uncertain about our life? We've got to keep this God or goddess up on the hill so that we can pray for health. It's the goddess of health, God. And God says, yeah, but I promised you, if you trust me, I'm enough. I'll protect you from the pestilence. And they just say, God, we can't do it. It's too big an ask. We can't do it. And they don't. And God being a gentleman gives them over to their ways. They would hear, they would be hearing this prayer. They would read this in Second Chronicles seven, and they didn't think about them. They're thinking about how it was promised to their ancestors, but their other ancestors didn't believe it. And now they're living in the wake of their family, their ancestors' unbelief. Solomon heard this. This actually happened to a real man named Solomon. He heard God's words, and he would want to lead God's people in God's promised land to be holy and blessed and repentant. This really did happen to a person, an extremely imperfect person. Solomon was insanely wise. You know, Solomon's the guy who said, let's cut the baby in half and, uh, and give both moms some baby. And one of the moms says, no, no, don't cut the baby. And, and, and then he knows that's the, the actual mom. That's King Solomon. King Solomon was also a terribly, um, prolific man when it came to all things sexual, and he had uh, hundreds of wives and concubines, or as I thought of them when I was a kid, porcupines, and he had all of this going, and like he, he just, he was n- no hero. God was the hero of the story, but Solomon, this really was promised. If they would believe and uh, follow, then God would set them apart and bless them as they were a repentant people. I've often heard this verse, though. So many times. If America, if America, or if Christians in America called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal America. I've seen this on bumper stickers. Anybody ever seen this on a bumper sticker? Yep, a couple of you. Anybody ever seen this on a t shirt? I've seen this on a lot of t shirts. You probably. You native Bostonians probably haven't seen this on as much stuff. I'm telling you, there's parts of the country where this is on everything. Like it's on everything. I've seen it on t-shirts. I've seen it on bumper stickers. I've seen it on billboards going down I-75 in middle Georgia south of Atlanta and north of Florida. It's probably on multiple billboards. There's this deep belief that if Christians in America will turn from wealth or war or abortion or sexual sin or broken families or like it was in my family as a kid from like watching MTV and listening to rock and roll or rap music, then if we just did those things, God would heal America as if this what happened was being written to America. Let me just tell you a couple quick things. There are no—this is going to be the most obvious thing you're ever going to hear in church. Get ready. There are no verses in the Bible about America. Like, if you're confused, I've read the whole thing a couple times. America is nowhere in here. Like, God did not write the Bible for America. He just didn't. Like that is really, really obvious, but there's a lot of us who get confused about it, especially when we read verses. And some verses definitely apply, but we have to begin to read the Bible for what it actually said, not what we want it to say. And then we have to wisely discern what it actually meant for the people it was written to and then we have to build a bridge over to how it applies for our life. No Bible verses are about America. It could also, by the way, before we just think, oh, he's just bashing America, people in Great Britain can do this, people in France could do this, people in Sweden can do this, in Norway, you know, in, in Sweden, in, in Sweden, uh, they have the Svenska Sherka, which is the Swedish church. So on your paycheck, the church takes out a portion of your income and pays it to the church. No one actually goes to church in Sweden anymore. I've been there multiple times. Nobody goes, but part of your paycheck comes out. Like if any nation could claim to be a Christian nation, it would be the nation where your paycheck withholds money to go to the church. Like, right? So they could claim it. I've thought about Rome. i thought about the Ukraine, uh, deeply Christian places. I thought about Ethiopia and Egypt where the church is as old as the church is. Like, right from Acts 1-8 and Pentecost, by the time you get to Acts 9, we just read the other day in small group about the Ethiopian eunuch. Listen, the church in Ethiopia is 2,000 years old. They could lay claim to being a Christian nation just as much as we could, but they would be misusing this verse as well. So despite the misuses, let me just tell you three things I think are very true. We, Christians, followers of Christ, should do what verse 14 tells us. This is not written to America, but it is possible for us to glean some principles in here that would be really good. And these are three that the verse explicitly tells us to do. We should humble ourselves. God's people should humble ourselves. We are not the ancient nation of Israel, but the principle is true. We should humble ourselves. We should be hungry for God. God talks about if we would pray and seek his face, we should hunger for God. And we should, beca- we should pursue holiness. We should pursue holiness. These are good things. And how do I know that we should do these things? Because if I go to the New Testament, written to the church, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Peter wrote to Christians, he said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. We should pray. I, I think about First uh, Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timoth- Timothy chapter 2, he's talking about Christians as it relates to their nations that they live in. He says, first of all, then, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We should seek God's face. We should hunger for God. We should turn from our wicked ways. Humility, by the way, is not thinking less of ourselves. It's also not thinking more of ourselves. It's just thinking of ourselves less. If you go, Am I humble or am I not? How do you know? Like if you're like, I'm so humble, the odds are you're probably not, right? Humility is when somebody begins to talk about you or they're talking about themselves and you just aren't even thinking about yourself. You're so buried in hopes for God and hopes for them that you're not, you don't even care anymore about yourself. I have a long ways to go on that, by the way, because sometimes when people are talking, I'm just thinking about how I'm gonna respond. Sometimes when people are praising me, I'm like, yeah, you're right on. Sometimes when people are criticizing me, I'm wanting to defend myself. God still has work to do in my heart on humility. Humility occurs when I'm very self-forgetful. Hunger for God. We should want hunger for God. A hunger for God is given by the Spirit, but it's stoked by us. How can you, I won't answer this for you because it varies for all of us. How can you stoke a hunger for God in your life? We ran out of coffee Friday in our house. This is like, in our house, this is bad. So yesterday, Natalie made decaf, feels like a swear word to even say it, right? Like, it just feels wrong that we drank decaf in the morning, and by like two o'clock, I'm like, I have to take a nap because I'm turning into a bear. And so I did. I took a nap, and I woke up, and I had a headache. It was just awful. Like, I woke up this morning, and Natalie was like, I'm so glad it's church day. One, because we're having church. Two, because there's caffeinated coffee at church and we haven't gone to the grocery store yet. And so I love my coffee. I get crazy when I don't have my coffee in the morning. The Lord would have us hunger for him that same way. What stokes a hunger in your heart for the Lord and things of the Lord? And are you feeding that? Are you getting filled? Or are you getting filled by lesser things? And then God would have us be a holy people pursuing Him and pursuing what God loves. One of my mentors, a guy named John Randalls, and Randalls would—people would go up to John and they would be like—they would, would just say, just give me a word of encouragement. He would say, love God, hate sin. That's a good—that's a good mantra love God, hate sin. And there came a point when I was younger, in my early 20s, where I was deeply arrogant about a lot of things and questioning a lot of things. And I began to think, hating sin, that's so passe and that's lame. Why are we talking about that? The older I get, the more I go, if I would love Jesus and hate sin, my life would be much less complicated. I think these are good Metric for us, even though Second Chronicle 7:14 isn't speaking to America or any other country, God's people should pursue these actions and trust that as we do, God hears us and forgives us and has forgiven us in Christ. And he heals us. The second thing I see in this verse is when we think about this verse, we ought to be identifying more with global Christians, no matter how distant or how different they are, than with Americans or with a political party or with our zip code or anything like that. We have more in common today. I want to show you a couple of funny maps, by the way. Uh, Ari, can you pull up the first one for me? This is who—I hope you can see some of this. This is who Americans cheer for baseball teams by state. Uh, so you've got New England up in the upper right. where all Red Sox. Probably just to the other side of Hartford actually would be Yankees. Uh, but like you get down in the South and it's Braves. You get to the Midwest and it's Cubs. They both had a national channel in the 80s, WGN for the Cubs and WTBS for the Braves. Like we identify with this. Like there's something that, you know, I've had friends who were here and they'll see somebody pass by with a Braves hat on. They're like, oh, that's my people. You know, I'm like, that guy might just wear a Braves hat. That doesn't mean anything, you know? Like, when I see someone wear a Red Sox hat in a different part of the country, I go, oh, there's, there's people. Like, if I'm on Russell Parkway and Warner Robins, Georgia, and I walk in the one Dunkin' Donuts in that town, and there's somebody in there with a Red Sox hat, I go, this feels safe, right? Like, we have no, I may mean, have nothing in common with that person. Show me the second one, if you will, Ari. This is where people in the United States, what they identify as their fast food restaurant of choice. So you've got the land of Chick-fil-A uh, down south of the Mason-Dixon line up here. You've got some Dunkin' Donuts. You've got uh, McDonald's. Uh, you've got a few — I don't understand Maine with KFC. I don't get that one. If anybody is a Mainer and wants to explain that to me later, I would love to hear that. I thought California was in and out Burger, but like we identify with this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, we, these, are, these are our people if they eat what we eat. Like, I remember when Starbucks came to Charlestown, it was like, is there going to be rioting in the streets that we're getting this other type of coffee here, and everything was pretty safe. If you'll go to the next one for me, Ari. This one is uh, — and this one, it, I'd have to show you a little closer. You're not going to get a clear image of it. But this is where, who Americans cheer for in college football. And the density of it shows you how passionately they cheer. So you can see in the South, it's really, really dense. Uh, When I was in ministry in Georgia, if the Bulldogs won on Saturday, it was like revival on Sunday morning. If the Bulldogs lost on Saturday, there was no one at church on Sunday. Everybody was hungover and brokenhearted and sunburned and mad. You get up to New England, look, there's nothing because we don't care about college football up here. People ask me all the time as a Georgia grad, they're like, were you pumped that Georgia won the national championship? I was like, most of my neighbors and friends didn't even know that college football is played on Saturday. So they certainly don't care if it Georgia won the national championship. And no, it's fine, like they won, it's great, life goes on. Like we identify with this stuff, you know, we identify with this, it, more so in other parts of the country. If you'll go to the next one for me, Ari. This one is uh, what you call your soda. How many of you call it soda? How many of you, anybody here call it pop? Pop is the uh, blue, I believe. How many of you call it Coke? Anybody call it a Coke? Gotta get a Coke. There you go. Do you really? Wow. Tonic, yeah, the, old, the older New Englanders, which I'm not saying you're older, but some older New Englanders will sometimes call it tonic. I'm like, what is this, the Andy Griffith show? It's amazing. Like we hear these things and we go, oh, my people, they called it a soda. Oh, they called it a Coke. You go to the 99, I want to get a Coke. We only have Pepsi. Like they get it. Like they get how it works. We identify with this stuff. If you'll go to the next one for me, Ari. This is how Americans identify by denomination. So in the North, you've got people who are of Roman Catholic. sort of. That's what we associate with up here in the South. It's Methodists and Baptists. We see this stuff and we go, those are my people. Those are my people. I know that. I know that style of worship. I know that church building. I know those things. I think the Lord would care more that we just love Him more than He cares about denominations. If you want to see any of these maps up close later, by the way, I can send them to you. Go to the last one for me. Why do I say all that? This is the state of global Christianity. Anywhere where you see green, it is fairly — at least culturally Christian. There's access to the Gospel. Anywhere where you see red, there's little to no access. We could talk about this all day. I would love to talk about this all day. If you would like to get coffee and talk about this, I would be more than happy to talk about it. But here's what I wanna show you. If you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, you see that it's deeply green. I tend to think I have almost nothing in common with my brothers and sisters in Africa. The truth is, I actually have more in common with most Africans than I do with most Canadians. Because Canada is significantly less Christian than most of Africa. So when the Bible talks about if my people who are called by my name, the closest parallel we get to it in 2022 is those who are followers of Christ. And that is no respecter of borders. We have much more in common with people in Africa and in China and in parts of the Middle East today than we do with our next door neighbors who drink the same kind of coffee and cheer for the same baseball team as us. That's important for us to realize, and I think that that's one of the things that, this map, that these maps are talking about, and the Scripture's talking about. And so when you give, or you pray, or we send teams to places for missions and church planting, we're actually helping family. So every time you give a dollar here at Christ Church, almost 20 cents of it goes to plant churches and do missions somewhere on planet Earth. Almost 20 cents of a dollar. A little more of it even goes to serve in this community. When we do those things, we're taking care of family, not helping out someone in need. So we grieve and we celebrate and identify with global Christians who are persecuted. We celebrate when they're doing well. That's a good thing to do That's It's good to be knowledgeable about people following Christ around the globe. And I would even say going on a mission trip is a worthy ambition. And we want as a church, even this year, to establish Christian partners and places outside of New England where we're praying and sending teams. The third thing I think we see in this verse, last thing. The promises God gives to this king, Solomon, in 950 B.C., for these people, ancient Israel, and this land, Palestine at this time, are not a general universal promise. Even the writers of 2 Chronicles understood it wasn't for them. No other nation in history could claim this verse. I've said that before. I claim such and such a verse. I'm claiming this verse. One of my favorite verses to claim is uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says… God promises, and He is faithful, and He will do what He promises. I can claim that. No one can claim this particular verse. It was for a specific people. But by God's grace, because of Christ, though exiled and enslaved and defeated by sin, uh, Jesus' death has now made us a people. Let me read you one of the sweetest verses in the entire Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says this, but you're a chosen race, Christians, you are a chosen race. Look around the room. Some of us are brown-skinned. Some of us are light olive-skinned. Some of us are dark olive-skinned. Some of us are a mixture. The Bible says, though, we're a chosen race. We are are a chosen race, we're one race together, all of us in this room. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's — the death of Christ has made us one race in this room. We are a people. We are a holy nation. We're a nation without land. We're a nation without borders. We're a nation with no one language. We're a nation with no fixed culture. And we have no king, only Jesus. But we are a nation. You know, to properly to be a proper Muslim, you have to read the Quran in Arabic. Any translation of the Quran that's not Arabic is a corrupted translation. So, unless you speak Arabic, you cannot be a proper Christian. It's not true, or a proper Muslim, excuse me. Um, not true of the gospel. We have friends, Aaron and Rebecca, who live in Western Africa, who are working on a translation of the Bible for a tribal group in Western Africa that's never had access to the Bible. That version that they're going to spend the rest of their lives working on will be just as inspired by God as the one that we're reading today in English because Christianity doesn't have a language. Christianity doesn't have, a, it doesn't have borders. It works just as well in Pakistan, and in India, and in China, and in Indonesia, and in Brazil, and in Guatemala as it does anywhere else on, the, on planet Earth. It doesn't need borders. It doesn't need a king. You are a people. We're a holy nation. Here's the crazy one. God was talking about his temple. Can I read to you uh, 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20? Let me read you this. Paul is talking to the church about the individuals and their bodies, and he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, verse 19. Or Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body, if the Spirit of God lives in you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Solomon in his prayer is dedicating a physical temple that is no more. The gospel says that our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God's Spirit lives in us, and that the gospel says that we're called by His name. When we're called Christians, we're being called little Christs. It's not a religion, it's us saying we are a little reflection of Jesus in this world. If we miss this, who we are and how we became His, and we begin to think of America first or a political party first or race first or age first or part of the country first or income first or even denomination first, instead of who we are in Christ is our identity, we miss Christ, we miss our adoption, we miss His blessing, we miss our rights, we miss His great family. The Lord has allowed us to be part of His family. Celebrate America tomorrow, but let's remember our better king. Let's remember our citizenship. Let's remember that he has sent us into this world to be ambassadors. Let's remember our brothers and sisters globally. Let's pray for our country, but pray even more for the church and the gospel globally. Let's be faithful to be praying for our nation, but let's be even more faithful to pray for God's people throughout the world. Let me pray for us. God. We love you. Thank you for everyone here on a holiday weekend. It is good to get a uh, three-day weekend. I pray that tomorrow we will celebrate our nation uh, by eating hamburgers and hot dogs or whatever our food of choice is. I pray that we will watch fireworks uh, and and take lots of photos and post them on Instagram because surely a firework didn't go off if it doesn't get posted on Instagram, that we will wear uh, red, white, and blue stuff if that's how we roll, or not if it's not. Uh, God, we're thankful that we live in a country where we get to come and read the Bible and pray and worship you. Lots of places on planet earth. A lot of places on planet earth today, that's not an option. Thank you. But God, even more, we remember that we are your church, that we are a people. And if we have nothing in common, if we have Christ in common, then we have the best thing in common. So we pray we would be a humble people together, a people who are hungry for you, and a people who are pursuing holiness, and that we would remember what you're doing in the world and our identification with our brothers and sisters. God, if there's anybody in the room today who's never given their life to you, Lord, I thank you that you don't call us to religion and you don't call us to any like sort of silly watered down version of anything. You call us to be part of your family and you made the way by Jesus dying on the cross. So God, if there's anyone in the room today who's never given their life to you, never turned from sin and self and trusted in the work of Christ, I pray that they would do it or they would talk with someone about that and not keep that. God, when you come and you put your hand on our heart and ask us to surrender something uh, to you, especially ourselves, God, I pray that we would not remain inactive. We love you. We bless you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.